Our primary reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 12. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the world of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. At my last church, we would always start with the pastor saying, the Lord be with you and the congregation replying and also with you. And it would just comfort my heart to do that this morning. So the Lord be with you. Thank you. There is so much in this passage, so let's jump right in. In 1994, the Christian recording artist named Ray Boltz released a song, and it was called Feel the Nails. And in this song, he painted a heart-wrenching picture of this idea that Christians could continue to cause Christ to suffer. Here's some of the words of the song. The chorus and the second verse go like this. Does he still feel the nails every time I fail? Can he hear the crowd cry, crucify again? Am I causing him pain? Then I know I've got to change. I just can't bear the thought of hurting him. It seems that I'm so good at breaking promises, and I treat his precious grace so carelessly. But each time he forgives, what if he relives the agony he felt on that tree? I was barely a teenager at the time that this song came out, and I would listen to it and feel deep remorse for my perceived failures. 
causing Jesus to feel the nails in his hands again and again, I couldn't bear the thought. And in my mind, this meant if I didn't pray enough, if I didn't share the gospel enough, if I was mean to my sister, I would cause Jesus to relive the cross. My very sensitive and perfectionistic-leaning heart took this idea quite seriously. See, I'd already at that time internalized a deep and thorough rejection of what it meant to be human myself. It was unacceptable in my mind to do anything but strive for greater goodness because only then would I have the favor of God and only then would Jesus stop suffering on my behalf. Now, as I say the words today, I can almost feel an elephant sitting on my chest. What a weight to bear. And I wasn't meant to bear it. It was a false guilt. It was a shame-induced and very poor theology. And yet, it ran deep in me, and in some ways, I still feel the remnants of it, almost on a cellular level. Some of you might have grown up in a similar belief system. Perhaps you didn't think you would cause Jesus to relive the cross over and over with your failures, but maybe you believed there was this standard of behavior that Jesus was holding you to, and if you didn't uphold it, you would fall out of favor with God. Or maybe even more alarming, perhaps you believed if you fell away from whatever the prescribed behavior was of your Christian culture, then hell was waiting. You're always teetering on this precipice between heaven and hell, and only good decisions or maybe even perfection stood between the two. We all heard the sayings that were thrown at us from the pulpit, things like, stay on the straight and narrow, blessing follows obedience, curses follow disobedience. And this one, God is not interested in your happiness, he is interested in your holiness as though the two are mutually exclusive. And all of this added up to a really frantic way of being for some of us. There was a paradox we were asked to live in. Believe that grace alone gets you into heaven, which is how salvation was defined, but work like crazy until you get there to please God. Trust in this abundance of grace to save you, but don't mess up in your relentless pursuit of holiness in the meantime. And for some of us, it got worse. Don't stray or you'll go to hell. Not only were things going to get bad here in this life, but there was the idea of being doomed after. What a confusing and crushing belief system we were asked to abide by. And I wonder why it seems like no one could get the basics of faith right. This faith rooted in grace and goodness for our conversion and after. See, parts of the church today don't look very different from the church that the author of Hebrews is writing to. And as an aside, I am taking a position that somebody other than Apollos wrote Hebrews. I've had Colin's full blessing to present a different view. So I'm going to argue Priscilla wrote Hebrews, and that's how I'll uh, talk about it for the rest of the sermon. Priscilla is addressing this group of Jewish Christians who have been believers long enough that they should have a firm understanding of the basics of faith. They should have been moving on toward maturity, 
And yet, like many of the communities we grew up in, those very basic foundational tenets of faith aren't clear. And the author of Hebrews says to her audience, friends, you really should be moving on by now. We should be growing up into a mature and complete faith. This is what she says in Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Her audience should have been getting the basics right and then actively living out that faith. And yet they no longer tried to understand or to grow. She tells her audience, it's time to grow up. Now referring to an audience as children was a common form of teaching of philosophers and teachers at the time. The idea was that they wanted them to stop being kids, to move on to greater knowledge and education. Even Paul uses this language in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. This isn't a denigration of children. It's simply saying, as you move through school, you have to move beyond the ABCs at some point, so it is with faith. We have to keep growing. Now, it's also important to note that the author of Hebrews uses a common form of instruction at the time that philosophers and early preachers would use. She's giving a sermon, and in the middle of this sermon, right here, our passage today is actually a detour. She's just talked about the priestly nature of Jesus. She's going to come back to that, but in the meantime, in order to engage her audience, she's going to take a detour to keep us wrestling with what she's saying. So this section is going to use hyperbole. It's going to use strong language. It's going to appeal to emotion because she wants to motivate her audience to keep listening. She's also going to use fear as a motivational tool here. Now, we would not generally advocate for a teacher using fear as a way to motivate their students, although you could argue that fear of a bad grade is an appropriate motivation for students still trying to do their best work. But she's going to use fear as a way to insert it into her rhetoric to gain the attention of her audience. She wants them to move toward maturity, to get the basics right, and to live them out. She's asking this group of Jewish Christians to stay the course, to refuse to give up their faith in light of persecution, and to faithfully wait for the promises of God. What she's asking is costly and difficult, but she is confident that they can do it. Now, the author names what she calls the basics, or as the NIV says, elementary teachings about Christ. She says they are as follows. Repentance, faith, cleansing rituals, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and judgment. Now, we need to remember the first century church is still formulating a united doctrine and practice. Teachings such as the Didache, which was a book of the apostles' teaching, was still being formed at this time. So the author's drawing from what she sees as the essentials, 
what she thinks all the churches should be able to get behind and be well-versed in. Now, if we were to look at this list, we could probably point out some areas that it would be helpful for us to brush up on. Is the author saying, we need to be so well-versed in these basics that we could practically write a dissertation on them before we become mature? I don't think so. I think she's frustrated that the fullness of the gospel isn't being lived into in this community, let alone the basics being fully understood. I can hear her saying, let's move forward. We've been in this place for a long time. Much as I think we could say this of church communities today. If I think about how often heaven and hell and faith alone were talked about in churches I grew up in, I could see a preacher coming in after decades and saying, okay, you've spent years talking about grace. You've spent years talking about heaven. Now go live out a heavenly reality in your community. Go bring justice to the oppressed in your world. Start calling out racism. Go to your borders and extend your hands in compassion to those who are detained. It's time to move beyond the basics of telling the gospel because that is to be the foundation for the doing of the gospel. It's a both and. It isn't an either or. But for the church that the Hebrews is addressing, it was often not the both and. And for churches today, we are often missing the two together. Author Diana Butler Bass describes a time when, as a college student, she went to Mexico on a mission trip. And there she began to expand her thinking about the lordship of Jesus and what the gospel is. And here's how she described that experience. She said, the first time I went as we crossed the border from San Diego to Tijuana, I was unprepared for the poverty of the people and the economic distress of the city. We drove southward, and my friends pointed out villages that had welcomed our group. After we'd parked, I looked around, and much of the tiny community was built out of old tires. Foundations of houses, walls that held back hillsides, and raised garden beds. Tires. Tires everywhere. Little kids crawling over them, food grown in them. The shock must have registered on my face. Tires were toxic subject to special handling and recycling as hazardous waste. Yes, my friend Gordon whispered to me, Americans dump tires over the border, and these people live in our garbage. As Gordon chatted with the pastor, it was hard to follow in Spanish, and I became lost in my own thoughts. What did Jesus as Lord mean here, living in a village made from American trash? And what were we doing polluting this country and poisoning these children? As the dust blew in my face, almost as the spirit, it dawned on me that Jesus' lordship was far more about surrendering control of my own life to God. It had something to do with this place, bringing this under his lordship too. Jesus' lord was not just a personal confession. The implications of the proclamation edged toward politics, toward a reordering of economics, of environment, of power. Bass is moving on from an understanding of salvation as simply a personal confession to embracing salvation as also wholeness and completeness for ourselves, our communities, and our world. 
Doctrines of repentance and faith are crucial. They're important. But let's keep growing in the ways in which these truths work themselves out in our very real lives and in our very real world. N.T. Wright says this about our passage today. The purposes of God and the gospel are focused on God's longing to put the world to rights and to put people to rights as part of that work. What the writer here longs for is that people should become proficient in understanding and using the entire message of God's healing, restoring, saving justice. He wants them to know their way around the whole message of scripture and of the gospel, to be able to handle this message in relation to their own lives, their communities, and the wider world, and to see how all the different parts of God's revelation fit together, apply to different situations, and have the power to transform lives. It's about transformation. It's about wholeness and the restoration of our world. And so after prompting her audience to move toward maturity, to live out these things they say they believe, Priscilla then begins a stern warning. She uses the most extreme language that she can find in order to motivate her audience. And here's what she says. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Now, this passage is one of the most misunderstood and hotly contested passages in all of Scripture. It's been the basis for formulating some pretty harmful church doctrine since the third century. It's been used as a sword to pierce the hearts of people who are struggling in their faith, who are seeking restoration. And there was even debate in the formation of the New Testament canon as to whether or not Hebrews should be included because of this passage. To modern ears, it raises some really particular questions. Questions like, can I lose my relationship with God and my eternal security? And if so, what does it take to lose it? And if I can't lose it, can I give it up? Will I go to hell if I was once a Christian and then I decide I no longer am? Is it even possible to decide to no longer be a Christian? Or am I truly once saved, always saved? If someone walks away from their faith, were they ever a Christian at all? Unfortunately, I cannot answer all of these questions today. We would need weeks to look at scripture, to discern in community where we land on this. But I can tell you, I don't think the author is actually speaking to these questions at all. I can tell you what I think she's addressing and the places where I believe we can apply these verses today. So let's start with what I think she's actually addressing. The author is exhorting a community she loves. And she wants to see that community stay the course and grow. The reason this is so critical is because the persecution of Christians was ramping up at the time Hebrews was written. 
there was great suspicion of these Christ followers who refused to declare Caesar as divine and Lord and instead declared the lordship of a crucified Jewish peasant. These people were not only outliers, they had strange and sadistic rituals such as eating somebody's body and drinking somebody's blood. That was the rumor. They were blamed for military losses because they wouldn't worship the Greco-Roman gods. And as a result, the pressure was on for believers such as Priscilla's audience. Some were recanting their faith. When faced with prison or the sword, they were denying Christ. Now, this remained a problem for the early church, actually until the third century when Constantine was converted and Christianity became widespread through the empire. In fact, in the latter half of the third century, so about two centuries after Hebrews is written, this is still an issue. Emperor Diocletian at the time instituted an even greater persecution of those he believed were responsible for plagues and pestilences, and Christians were a target. But he had a very elaborate system for how somebody could recant their faith and stay alive. They needed to deny Christ, they needed to burn their sacred texts, and they needed to offer sacrifices and offerings to the Roman gods. As a result, many clergy in particular recanted. There was a group whose chief spokesperson at the time was named Donatus, and he was spreading the message that if clergy, when they once denied their faith, tried to come back and perform the sacraments, that those sacraments were invalid. And a controversy was created that never went away until the removal of Christianity in the seventh century. It was never resolved. And so we see this practical problem the church faces over centuries that the author of Hebrews is addressing. The question is, how do we bring someone back into Christian community once they've publicly denied their faith? And can we? What does that say about staying in the course? What does that say about honoring the martyrs? About our unity and fellowship? And could we even trust those people? Because who's to say they aren't informing for Rome? I mean, imagine the dilemma the early church is facing. In light of this reality, some commentators believe that the author of Hebrews is just addressing a practical question. If we want to restore someone, and they don't want to be restored, and they've publicly denied Christ, how would we do that? Isn't this impossible? Again, we're talking about people publicly denying Christ in order to avoid persecution. The end of verse 6 in our passage says, these people were subjecting Christ to public disgrace. It was a public denial. Unlike the song I quoted at the beginning of the message, the author isn't talking about, about people who are failing or who are struggling or who are imperfect. She's specifically warning people against the effects of publicly denying Christ and how that plays out in Christian community. Declaring one's faith was a public and communal experience for early believers. It wasn't so much sitting alone and accepting Jesus as joining a community centered around faith in Christ. The individual mattered, but the focus was not on individual salvation alone. In fact, conversions often happened in entire families and entire communities. 
the author is telling her audience in as strong of language as she can not to recant their faith and leave the community in order to satisfy Rome. She's using hyperbole, stark images such as burning thistles to show that the end of that path is only harmful and destructive for all. Now she is certain her audience has not recanted. This is a prophetic warning. Now even though the author says it's impossible to restore someone back to community who does the unthinkable and publicly denies their faith, we need to read this in light of what Jesus said while declaring that it was impossible for a wealthy person to enter heaven. In Matthew 19, Jesus said it's harder for the rich to go to heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the disciples ask a valid question. They say, who then can be saved? They were surrounded by the wealth of Rome. And Jesus answered, with man or with humans, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Is there any reality that we could not apply this truth to? In scripture, we're often given juxtapositions and an upside-down reality that we're to hold. Paul says a similar thing in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. He says, if we died with him, with Christ, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Which is it, Paul? Does Jesus disown us if we disown him, or does he remain faithful because we are his very body and he cannot disown himself? Yes. Is it impossible for the rich to enter heaven, or is it possible with God? Yes. In the Old Testament, we see so many stories of God declaring consequences and judgment on his people, at the same time declaring mercy and grace on them. Which is it? Yes. Scripture doesn't tie things up in neat, neat, nice bows. It leaves us wrestling and searching and questioning. But it does bring us back to the faithfulness of God again and again. The author concludes with an affirmation of God's faithfulness on behalf of the people she's writing to. She's ended the warning. She's moving into an assurance of what she sees. She leaves that hyperbolic rhetoric and she brings them back to a truth they can root themselves in, the truth of God's goodness. She says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those through, who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. God is not unjust. God is not unjust. God is not unjust. Hear that louder than you hear your own questions about the previous verses. The author is rooting us in truth here, in hopeful, good, glorious truth. God will not forget. Even if you stray today, God doesn't erase the way that you have loved his people. 
Even if you take a detour, God does not forget how you have loved him. God is not unjust. Jesus said what we do for those the world considers the least are actually the ways we serve him. Loving God and loving people are the same thing in scripture. And the audience of the author of Hebrews is encouraging her audience in this way. She affirms the way they've loved. She encourages them to continue to put their faith into action and to move toward a mature faith. This was a group of people who would not recant. This was a a group of people who would go on to maturity. She was certain of it. Now, were these believers getting everything right? No. Priscilla's been clear about that. But she is convinced this is not the end of their story. And she's assuring them that God honors the things they have gotten right. And friends, I think this should give us hope. When I think about perseverance, like Priscilla is encouraging her audience, I think of my childhood friend, Kimberly, who I just lost a few weeks ago. She and her family moved in next door to mine when I was five years old, and her parents still live next door to my parents. Kimberly and her sister were like siblings to my sister and I. We did everything together. We even had matching dresses, all four of us, one Christmas. We were inseparable. And Kimberly taught my sister and I what it was like to have a sibling with a disability long before we had our own brother with a disability. To be with Kimberly was to take care of her trach and to bag her with air, and my sister was an expert at suctioning that trach. It was just what you did when you were with her because she had a condition called spinal muscular atrophy. She'd never been able to walk, but she used to maneuver around in an electric wheelchair, practically knocking us over as we would run through the house. And she used to be able to control different parts of her body until over the last 15, 20 years, she could only move her thumb. The only part of her body she could move was her thumb. But with that one thumb, she got a master's degree and she worked a job. She helped people with disabilities and natural disasters. She made sure they had resources and were accounted for. People, her teams would take in GoPros to locations so that she could go with them from her bed at home. When Kim was two, she stopped breathing, and my mom administered CPR and was able to bring her back. And even at such a young age, Kim articulated what she'd seen, and she said she had seen Jesus. And she said, Jesus told me I will walk one day. And one of my first thoughts when I heard she passed a few weeks ago at the age of 38 was that now that had come true. I could see her running into the arms of Jesus now. Kimberly had waited her whole life to walk. She'd recently been on a brand new medication that was cutting edge and she'd fought her insurance company for it and she was enduring weekly injections. She was actively waiting for what God had promised. She was doing all she could to live into what she'd heard from God. And I know she grew weary. The last two years had been particularly challenging as she had severe reactions to medication, eye surgeries that had gone awry, swelling of her tongue and rashes all over her body. And yet, Kimberly kept going. She kept waiting, she kept hoping, she kept working, she kept trusting. And so when I become weary, I think of her. I think of what Priscilla is telling her audience to wait for God to fulfill his promises, 
I think some of us would love to be able to sit back and relax in our faith, but that's just not an option. We might be tempted to stop at the basics of good beliefs and leave the action to someone else. We might be tempted to give up. And yet, I believe God's saying through what we read today, there is so much more. Keep going. We may even want to turn back. Or we may believe God's forgotten us or the way that we've loved him and loved people. That somehow this has just slipped the mind of God. But all the while I believe he's holding every single one of our gifts of love close to his heart just waiting to pour out the fulfillment of his promises if we hold on. For me, Kimberly represents what mature faith is all about. A faith rooted in truth and lived out in action. And I wonder what lessons of goodness and faithfulness God may still have to show us as we move forward into a mature and grace-filled trust. Will you press on like the audience of Hebrews did? Will you keep going, moving past good beliefs and acting on those good beliefs for the restoration of our world? May we embrace the whole gospel pursuing goodness and wholeness in community, and may the grace of God give us what we need to do just that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Will you pray with me?
Well done. All right, next question. Where do you think Parkside should be growing? I think for a lot of us, we're still rebuilding pieces of faith that has crumbled. I think for a lot of us, we're coming out of some level of deconstruction. And so I think sometimes we can stay in that space good to think deeply. It's good to keep doing the work theologically, but at some point we have to be a little bit more active in our involvement. So I think we're doing some of that with the Cajun is a great example of how that's being lived out, but I think there's more. I think there's more we can do to fight racism, to fight injustice, and to extend our hands in compassion to those who are in need. So I think we're doing it, but it may be time to even just stay, take one step farther. Well said. Here, here. And on that note, don't forget to grab the Cajun forms as you're leaving today, so that way you can attend the next meeting. Um, and also, is Denise here that made our wonderful bread this morning? She dropped it off, but we're not sure if uh, they're both glutinous or if one is gluten-free. I did not see her this morning, but I wanted to see if uh, she popped in. All right, well, we have solutions. Thank you so much, Sarah.